You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. Uh, my name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'll be your host today for a conversation with uh, Joe Bernstein. Uh, Joe, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Joe Bernstein. Um, I'm a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. I've been on sabbatical for the past uh, year doing a, a Neiman Fellowship, which is a journalism fellowship uh, at Harvard. Uh, and the reason I'm on the show today is while I was at doing the Neiman, I sort of worked on this project about um, disinformation, discourse around disinformation uh, in the news um, and in academia sort of over the past, uh, over the past four years of the Trump years that just ran in Harper's um, as a, as a story there. Yeah. So um, I am holding up it's the cover story in the September issue of Harper's. Uh, the hey! cover has some reflection there. And, and sorry, sorry, sorry for getting the Steen Stein wrong on your name. Um, I'm sure that happens often. So um, I mean, I, you know, members of the tribe are allowed to get it wrong. <laughs> um, so thanks for taking the time to come on. Uh, yeah. So this is a, a big piece that lots of people were talking about. And I found it very interesting. There are parts uh, I agreed with, parts I disagreed with. I'm, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of pushback. Because you're taking a very counter-narrative um, perspective. And, I mean, would it be an exaggeration to say that you think the, you know, the panic or up, outrage, uproar about disinformation slash misinformation slash fake news is way overblown and, and we're getting this whole thing wrong? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, and I also don't want to call it a moral panic or any of your sort of more Greenwaldian, Taibian, you know, sort <laughs> of uh, Zed Jelanian, not that those people don't have contributions to make, um, sort okay, of. So you're not parlaying this into a substack no. immediately. And uh... I, I'm not. And I'm sorry to disappoint those who hope that I will. Um, my point is not that, um, there is not propaganda and bad and dangerous, um, content on social platforms. Um, let no one put those words in my mouth. My point is that there is a narrative around content on the internet right now that I think, uh, is, is, has over egged the pudding, uh, has over torqued itself a little bit. Uh, and I wrote this piece because I think there's some, there's some, there's a lack of coherence to it, um, that I think ultimately needed to be brought to the fore, if only to strengthen arguments, you know, against the platforms. Um, and, and I, and I think, um, when you have a kind of a dominant, um, critique, uh, of, of, um, of the kind that this one is, um, the longer the sort of, I think what I consider good faith and reasonable criticisms of it go unaddressed. I think ultimately the weaker that, that, that line of criticism is. So that's why I wrote the piece. Okay. So one argument you make that is, was, is counterintuitive or was at least new to me, but does make sense is that in a way, the people who are, concerned about online disinformation and are trying to combat it are intentionally, largely unintentionally playing in the, into the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and other Silicon Valley titans because they are sort of implicitly saying that these platforms are very efficient ways to change people's minds or convince people of things. And the platforms uh, almost entirely make their money through advertising. And if yeah. there's the idea out there that Facebook is the place you go if you need to change someone's mind. Um, that ultimately helps Mark Zuckerberg's bottom line. Right. I mean, you stated the argument very succinctly. Um, what got me thinking <laughs> along these lines is actually there's a phrase that's used to describe, um, you know, sort of all the media we come in contact with, the information ecosystem. And so people talk about Facebook and YouTube, Twitter, as polluters there's like a pollution model and so i started thinking quite literally about like oh um the energy industry and the tobacco industry and these like literal polluters and i started thinking about like how uh intensely and how long they fought um like the science that they were polluting 
uh, and then I thought sort of how quickly um, actually the tech industry um, basically took on board the criticism that their content is too powerful um, or is too effective at changing people's minds um, and how quickly they attempted to take on board their critics through uh, partnerships and, and, and things of things like that. Um, and so I started wondering why it would be more beneficial to them to incorporate the critics than to fight them on their primary claim. And then I started wondering if their primary claim is actually so different from the actual thing that makes these platforms money. So is that a little convoluted? Maybe. Um, but I do think it's part of a general worldview um, that has really sprung up fast that um, what people see on the Internet um, is like deterministically, um, uh, you know, um, is mechanically deterministic. Um, and I think it's worth, uh, you know, pushing back against that a little bit, wondering about the research, uh, wondering about the, the, the implications and wondering about the politics of, of that claim. Right. And so your analysis is sort of a cooey bono, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, or, in some way, it's like a, maybe we could call it like vulgar Marxist, like just follow the money sort of thing. Like, you know, why? And that's a good analogy, I think, that, you know, cigarette companies, um, you know, fought and funded studies and had their own public campaigns for decades trying to disprove the link between cigarettes and cancer. And it took, you know, massive lawsuits and like a cultural change to get them to capitulate. And, um, well, I think Zuckerberg in, in like late 2016 said something like, oh, I don't believe that Facebook played a role in the election. Like within a year, he was admitting that, you know, Facebook did play a role and so forth. So, so, you know, part of that could be sort of the, um, you know, sort of like regulatory capture argument, I guess, of being like, you know, we, um, yes, we know there's a problem, but let's all work together to solve it instead of, having some sort of draconian crackdown or, or something. Uh, but then, yeah, the idea that, you know, Facebook, <laughs> like Facebook really can change minds uh, is like I said before, is implicit in the critique. And so part of your piece is in some ways kind of like a argument against the effectiveness of advertising and, you know, the persuasion industry in general. Do you want to, yeah, I mean, I when I started thinking about this, I I quite naturally started thinking about the history of persuasion. I started thinking about the kind of highest profile kinds of mis and disinformation, um, which are political ads. Um, there's not a ton of literature on the efficacy of online political ads, um, but it's certainly not like only in one direction, uh, saying that they're super effective. Um, there's, there's a, you know, and I talk about this in the piece, um, and people can look that up if they want, but there's, you know, there's research that basically shows that people actually don't share fake news all that much, um, that, that, um, and that, uh, these sort of fake news ad buys compared to like a local television ad, uh, have a, have a, you know, minute, uh, effect on on vote share. Um, so, uh, you know, what I wanted to do there was just sort of point to the fact that the scholarship itself, the the quantitative scholarship is unsettled. Um, and then there's a larger cultural history of the ad industry uh, trying to cultivate um, behavioral science um, to give itself a kind of veneer of quantitative sophistication that would uh, essentially be a way of selling their own product, which is ad space. Uh, and so the more persuasive Facebook, YouTube, um, Twitter appear to be through whatever uh, smorgasbord of analytics uh, and fancy graphics, um, the the more the ad buyer feels that they've spent their money well uh, and that they've, you know, hit their targets. But there's actually, you know, there's a history of research on advertising, um, which is quite skeptical. There's a wonderful new, relatively new book that I talk about at length in this piece by Tim Wong, uh, who's now the general counsel at Substack, um, 
which is essentially about uh, the the many, many um, sort of weak pillars of faith of the online ad industry, um, which which is like far beyond like it's not beyond criticism and in fact facebook itself has um you know is engaged in litigation about overstating the reach and efficacy of its ads uh and so if you're willing to take that criticism on board you have to at least wonder about the efficacy of um mis and disinformative advertisements right um so you know the the idea that like or the, the idea that, you know, maybe adverti- advertising itself is sort of a scam and doesn't really work, like, that's been out there for a while. And I guess sort of everyone thinks, like, well, advertising must work on some people, but not on me. Like, I can see through it. You know, Coca-Cola is trying to seem cool. You know, like, I'm, I'm smart on that. That's sort of the, you know, right-thinking person's idea, maybe. Uh, but then, also, but then, you know, maybe the whole thing has been sort of a sham from the beginning. Like, advertising is... You know, not, I mean, maybe one thing is it's sort of like people who are already going to purchase a product yeah. will see the ad and then they feel a little bit better about it or maybe they're more yeah. like, uh, slightly more likely to do it, yeah. but you're said maybe you're not really changing minds, but okay. But then, so with, with, you know, before the internet, if someone placed an ad on television or in the newspaper or magazine, there was no real way to, aside from like looking at sales going up or down or like, doing a poll of like awareness of the brand or message or something. Right. Like there wasn't a real way to say this worked or this didn't work. Right. And, but, and then supposedly with online ads, right. you know, the, the click through and that, could, you know, that seems to be a piece of evidence. It could be manipulated and trying to figure out, you know, right. if anyone is actually clicking on these things, like right. it does, it's, it's more of an empirical thing, even if it can be scammed in some ways. I would really point people to this book, which which kind of blew my mind. Um, that the whole industry is beset by fraud, including click through rates. Um, more sort of maybe more to, to my point. Um, <laughs> it's interesting what you said about people think. Well, you know, all these suckers are convinced by ads, except by, except for me. Right. Think about the way people talk about disinformation. It's like all these sheep are convinced by what they see on Facebook, but not me. Like I know that that's bullshit. Um, it's interesting. Like just when you talk about it that way, that these two discussions really kind of, kind of do, um, kind of do parallel each other. Um, also, um, far be it from me to claim that like, ads don't work at all, or, you know, information on the internet doesn't work at all, just to say, like, I think we need to inject some skepticism into this discussion. Um, and perhaps the political atmosphere of the past, you know, five, six years has made it, has made it difficult. Right. And so, you know, like 40 years ago, if a big, or maybe in like Mad Men era or something, if there, if a big company did an ad campaign, in you know with full page ads in magazines and newspapers then you know the ceo or director of marketing or whatever would like see them and if they look good he would be happy and then if sales increase five percent the natural conclusion would be this played some role right um and then if sales went down maybe they think well the ads didn't work the ads are bad hire a new ad firm um i mean i guess i've you know i sort of share a skepticism about ads i mean especially you know, you have ads, okay, ads for Coca-Cola or something or McDonald's. Then you have ads for maybe like a new product or new thing. And then you have political ads, which are different and are much more about, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not parallel exactly to say trying to convince someone to buy a Pepsi versus convince someone to vote or not vote. It probably, I, I have been skeptical about the efficacy of political ads in general for a long time because- yes you know, who is like, first of all, I mean, in 2020, who, like, who was watching this shit? Maybe because people are stuck at home more, they were watching more TV, but, you know, uh, people tune out the, tune out advertising in general. Yeah. You you see the ad 12 times is, you're probably sick of it. I don't know. I like, and then I remember my, my grandfather, who, you know, passed away like 27 years ago. He used to, um, he used to, whenever the commercials came on TV, he would mute it. He would hold the clicker by him at all times. And when ads came out, he would just mute it. Um, and so, you know, and he was born in like 1915 or something. So, right. um, maybe, so he was sick of that shit you know, a long time ago. Right, right. So, like, it's interesting you bring that up. And also, media effects are not that well understood. There was a, um, 
There was a paper, this might seem unrelated, but there was a paper that was published yesterday that I got a kick out of. I think an economist at the University of Toronto figured out um, the effect of a uh, radio listener in the 1930s listening to Father Coughlin, uh, you know, the sort of rapidly anti-communist, anti-Semitic um, uh, priest in Detroit with the, you know, little flower church. Um, the effect of a listener listening to that program on FDR's vote share. And like, they've just, like, he just came out with this study 80 years later. Uh, <laughs> and like radio, let's say, is a significantly simpler thing to study than social media. Um, and more ubiquitous as in terms yeah, of ubiquitous, media share right, in the totally. 30s, whatever. Um, and so, again, um, what I wanted to stress in this piece, and, and maybe it didn't come through strongly enough, it's just like, take a breath, humility, massive changes happening. You know, there's a lot of people with economic interests here. Like, let's think about what they want to sell. Let's think about what the kind of storytelling that's happening is. Um, and then let's think about what, you know, how we want to critique these, these companies, which deserve critique. Absolutely. No question. Yeah. It's, you're definitely, it's definitely not a defense of Silicon Valley. It's no. more like, or it's possibly even a stronger damnation of them. If, if, you know, they're like supposedly doing the right thing in the public interest or something, but really they're, they're ultimately more, benefiting. Right. And like some people picked up on this and I appreciate it. It's like maybe a stronger, like maybe a stronger criticism of them than like your content is bad is like your products are worthless. Um, and <laughs> you know, like, wow, like, I don't know, but that's, that's just me. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot of different places we go. I mean, I saw just a couple weeks ago, Twitter released a quarterly earnings report and it was something like, maybe I even have the, like, I'm off by like, te- like 10 times or something. It was something like revenue, one point, you know, 1 billion and their, like total spending like 1.06 billion for like a profit of 30 million or something. So this raised a lot of questions. One, how are they making a billion dollars on Twitter ads, which are total garbage? Who is possibly click on these things? Right. Like I've, you know, you, there's probably more people clicking on Twitter ads by accident because there's thumb slipped than see something and clicks it and ends up making a purchase or something. But, but like, but like, are you like huge part of the Wong book is just how much of ad um, click-throughs are, are literal fat finger, especially on mobile. Uh, it's like a, it's like a not insignificant percentage are like your thumb is, is like they design the buttons so that you're like, your thumb is too big to like not click on that. <laughs> okay. Yes. I mean, the other, this, this, another question, which is not maybe within the ambit of this is how is Twitter possibly spending a billion dollars when a product is so shitty? Um, right. yeah. So like, where's this, where's this money go? Is this like being funneled into offshore accounts? Uh, you know, in or in Burma, where you know Jack is going to go become a monk or something. Um, but okay, so yeah, so how is it? You know, it, it like online ads. Like people are generally annoyed by them even more than you know uh, by grandfather muting the uh, TV in 1990, mm-hmm. and like people run ad blockers, um, and or you're just like they're total garbage. Just this, you know, like chum is sort of the term of art. Mm-hmm. These things like tabula and, you know, like a photo of a actor from Hee Haw. It's like, you won't believe how he died. And, and right. <laughs> like, it's just total garbage yeah. crap. Look who got fat. Yeah. You won't believe what they look like now. Like this is uh, or like the, the, it, it's just like, I have a sick fascination with this stuff. And if I were a real journalist, I would like look into how it's being made and how they write the things, because sometimes it's like a sort of strange, you know, poetry to the things like our robots oh, yeah. writing these things as the people in, you know, Southeast Asia, it, it's so yeah. confusing to me, but, um, it's a real beauty. So yeah, so there's this, all this crap. Okay. But then like, if, unless Twitter is like scamming the SEC, like they actually did collect a billion dollars plus from companies through their ads. And, you know, are, are, are the, like, are the companies themselves run by morons and they don't even understand what's, what's happening. They're like being swindled too. I mean, you mentioned this thing about how, like at like display ads on websites look good in PowerPoint presentations. Um, you know, when the like ad firm is doing their annual presentation to the board or something. And so maybe that's, you know, the effect is there, not in what it actually accomplishes in, in the real world, but okay. Yeah. What any response about that ramble? Well, like, I don't think, 
I don't think an ad has to be, I mean, part of the idea of this piece is that content, a piece of content like accepts so many different um, needs. There are political needs, there are economic needs, um, there are structural needs like that, that, you know, whether it's a, a Trump ad or an ad for, you know, like a taboo, like a chum box. And like, there's a marketing budget and like the marketing budget gets spent. And like, presumably that company makes money, whether it's based on fraud or whatever the hell. Um, and so like, to that extent, this little piece of content, uh, and I'm rambling now, but you know, it's, 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 it's a little building block for this world of persuasion that we're all convinced exists. Not to sound too like, you know, freshman year dorm room stoned or whatever, but like it does require a lot of, it requires some acts of faith. If you want to be generous, it requires some, um, it requires things that can't be quantified. It requires like assuming that certain you know, that, that, that brains are moved, uh, by seeing content. Um, and (laughs) you know, (laughs) maybe that's like, maybe, you know, I'm a, you know, we both work in the media. Maybe we don't want to hear that. Um, but my, but my, my, my broader point is not that people can't be convinced. It's that the idea that exposure to any one piece of content that you can isolate that and say, that's why this person is this way, voted this way, smeared their shit around the Capitol, um, took horse medication to treat a highly transmissible respiratory virus. (laughs) I think that's too far. I just think it is. And I think the discussion has moved too far in that direction. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, on the sort of the point of like, what is the, why do we consume content and does it change our minds? You know, I was an editor at Blogging Hedge, which in its original form was like left, right, civil conversation. And so I consumed like, you know, hundreds or thousands of hours of content of people talking about things that I didn't know about or I disagreed with them or something. And it's like, uh, you know, so I consumed way more like conservatives and libertarians talking than the average um you know, person of, of, who has my politics. And like, I wasn't really convinced of, of that much. Uh, and, you know, yeah. it, it's more like, it, uh, you know, often just giving new information just sort of like reinforces the beliefs you had. And it's, I came to sort of see it by the end is more like, you know, we're not like changing minds. It's, it's more like, you know, people watching sports and they just enjoy learning about these things or paying attention to them. But it's not like, yes, yeah, so, like an exercise in, really change minds or bring the light, you know, yeah, the light of the or, they to make, people. or they want to make their argument stronger. You know, I mean, that's a classic thing is a guy goes on YouTube because he wants to find out um, why like his argument with the creationist in his class, you know, why he's losing that argument and how to win it um, or what are, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a, I don't have like a unified theory of persuasion. And I think that um people who want to sell you one in this unbelievably unsettled era in media and politics are kind of full of shit. Okay. Um, so one sort of critique I would have of the piece is that, you know, the, like you, okay, well, you note accurately that all these terms are all poorly defined and what we call disinformation or misinformation or fake news, you know, these are not settled concepts. Um, so like in the original, my original understanding of fake news from like 2016 was, a Facebook post saying the, the Pope has endorsed Donald Trump. So that was not true. And then I think the investigation revealed that there was like some teenagers in Macedonia or something who are running these fake, like fake news sites where they were putting stuff just to get like clicks from credulous yeah. Americans. And they were like making money on ads yeah. or something. And, and somehow this you know was enough to <laughs> make their effort worth it. So that was original fake news. Trump appropriated the term such that anything he didn't like became fake news. So now, mm-hmm if you're a conservative or a mega mega person, you know, all news is fake news. And if, if I don't like something, then that's fake news. Um, so then you, okay. So you have like a 
you know, Macedonian scam artist. You have an American scam artist, former President Donald Trump. Uh, you have, I mean, this is, I think the story has been told again on this platform, but Nikita Petrov, who is a uh, uh, behind-the-scenes person at Blogging Heads, uh, lives in Russia, and he met at a party, uh, this story, you know, he told it to me years ago, so I may have some details wrong. He met at the party someone who worked at the Internet Research Association or whatever that uh, group was that was tasked by, you know, the Russian government to provide fake news to sway the 2016 election. And yeah. the guy was telling him, uh, you know, what he had done that day. And the thing he had done was he was in charge of a group that was appealing to Texans and he had posted a photo of a juicy steak and had gotten like 30 likes. And that, and his boss was happy that, that had happened. Um, so, so the vaunted, like, you know, disinformation campaign run by Putin right. was maybe just nonsense anyway and sort of like make work. And there's, there's even like a, I forget, that. <laughs> of course, don't remember the word. There's some term in Russian that's like a make work project that the government sets up just to, give yeah. people employment for a while and it never actually produces anything like that is such a part of Russian culture that there's a specific term for it. Yeah. 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 That may be what the, this was. Okay. So then you had, so, so maybe, so you have like, uh, you know, people who are possibly trying to influence uh, some uh, national politics of their country or another country and are, mm-hmm. you know, manipulating people online through or trying to, or pretending to be something, you know, or, or someone in some 20 something in Moscow is running a Texas you know, mm-hmm. group for Texas on Facebook. So there's that. And then you mm-hmm. have sort of like um, the uh, the way that the internet allows uh, groups of people who ha- share a similar belief that maybe the larger society doesn't share come together and, um, you know, talk to each other and uh, reinforce their ideas and exchange ideas yeah. and so forth. And so yep. things you referenced before, uh, QAnon, January 6th, and the recent craze for <laughs> ivermectin, um, Mm. Or fall in that ladder group. And so no one, I don't think, I mean, what's, and I tweet about this, like, what's weird about the ivermectin stuff and the fact that conservative influencers are promoting it is I don't think they actually have a monetary share in selling ivermectin. Usually if conservative influencers are selling pills, it's because they get a cut of the pills. And, yep. you know, so like Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones both sell nootropic, you know, brain yeah. pills. So that's yep. a longstanding scam on the right. These people, the ivermectin people became convinced somehow um, and they are working together. And, you know, 30 years ago, they w- these people wouldn't be able to find each other except right. down at the feed store where they were all buying their horse paste. So, right. so this is something different. This isn't like, there's no, no hit. As far as we know right now, there's no hidden hand from the ivermectin industry that is right. trying to do this. There's weirdo freaks like Brett Weinstein right. uh, or Weinstein, uh, who is trying to convince people that, uh, ivermectin yeah. is better for you than the COVID vaccine. And I don't know why he believes that he's a weird freak, yeah. but um, yeah. So how, how does that fit in? And is that different disinformation? Is that, you know, uh, mass psychosis? <laughs> how do you see it? I, there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, it's, it's bullshit information. It's bad information. Um, snake oil salesmen um, had a play, <laughs> have had a place in American society for a long time. Um Yes, they can uh, organize and activate people in a way that they probably couldn't in the past. Um, I would say some of that is simply a function of the internet. Uh, it brings people together. Uh, and one of the criticisms of my piece was that it too much is an argument for the internet as mirror argument, which is the internet merely uh, reflects what already exists in society. Um, I think that goes too far. I I mean, I don't agree with that. Um, And I think maybe like a fun house mirror. I don't know if anyone sees that metaphor, but yeah. Yeah. Um, And and, and, you know, it takes things I think latent in society or human psychology, human behavior and turns up the the volume on certain ones like emotionality or. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like, I think those things are all plausible and plausibly true. I don't think that they have that much to do with like, a lot of the way the disinformation sort of critique was formulated um, in the Trump years. Um, and also, you know, we don't have to, ivermectin um, or like real COVID, like, like lies about COVID are like a, like a case where it's pretty easy to say um, these are lies. They harm people. Like, let's get rid of them. Um, what I will say is uh, there was a point in time not very long ago where to even post on Facebook 
that COVID potentially uh, was a lab accident um, from a lab in China was verboten. It was taken down. Uh, and that literally changed because of a finding by the, um, by the American intelligence agencies. Um, and so to the extent that official knowledge is not there, uh, you know, like, I don't really think it should be the job of the media and academia to be like ahead of the FDA or like, um, you know, the CDC in telling Facebook what is and isn't mis or disinformation. Like that to me is not good. Uh, and, you know, I think we can be smart enough and subtle enough to hold in our heads like crazy horse syringe people and also people who um, really want to go too far in like making certain kinds of information completely off limits um, in ways that are like obvious, like in ways that don't, don't even take, you know, a year to, to, to be exposed as like ridiculous um, and ridiculously censorious. Yeah. I mean, I've mentioned before on this show that, um, you know, the, the problem of, Online comment moderation is, um, you know, fault is, uh, even though it seems like a minor one is, uh, you know, explains a lot of issues that are live debates today. And, you know, this, you know, Trump getting kicked off of Twitter was one example of online moderation finally happening. And yeah, so, I mean, it's one thing if a bunch of Americans somehow believe that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. It's another if a bunch of Americans believe something about a highly communicable disease that they can spread, you know, right. to strangers or their loved ones. Yeah. That, that isn't true. So, you know, should, and then this idea that like, it's impossible for the platforms to really do any sort of moderation about statements of fact, because I mean, even if you cut out all the non-English speaking, like, you know, <laughs> what are they, you know, almost every tweet is total garbage to begin with. Um, you know, they get, like, they can't take that down. The, the right. But sorry, as, I say the, as I say in the piece, there like is no definition of disinformation that will both satisfy like a basic epistemological test of coherence <laughs> and will also be useful for the platforms. It just won't, it can't exist. And so like at a certain point, you have to accept that these decisions are, to some degree, judgment calls or political. And that's, we have to be okay with that. Yeah. The platforms do have that power. Um, and yeah, everyone ends up hating the mods. Um, yeah. And <laughs> the moderator, I, I, someone who previously was a comment moderator on the Plugins website, you know, you never make everyone happy and you don't have the authority of a Supreme Court judge. So people are like, who the hell, you know, who the hell are you to say that this crossed the line? And yeah, right. there's no, um, the, the fact that, it's like some anonymous group of the, you know, Twitter content team or something is making it and they, who the hell are they? Right. We don't know. So, but it's so funny because, you know, you bring this up and then it's like, well, think about the Facebook, like content Supreme court. Like, what is that? If not like a beleaguered mods, like, you know, desperate scheme to like deflect blame a little bit. Um, you know, so I think there's some truth to that. I mean, yeah, I, and I mean the this. Do you mean like the council of elders that they've assembled of like deep thinkers who are mm, pondering these things? Yeah, that, I mean they're kicking the can up the road. I, I think it is sort of like you know if I ever got around to writing this piece, at the end it would be like it. Yeah, it's it's an insoluble problem, and you either you can't do it in a way that will make everyone happy. That's inherent in it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if people, I mean, and you 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 talk a little bit about like we're maybe just seeing more evidence of the sort of things that were out there already more in the audience than in the, you know, the content producers. And so, yeah. you know, there have always been people who had strange beliefs yes. and, um, but maybe the average, you know, <laughs> the average uh, member of the reading public who subscribes to Harper's didn't have contact with these seven people. And how would they 40 hey. years ago, how would they make their, you know, weird beliefs known. There was, you know, they got a zine or something, or they could stand on the right. street corner and yell, and and that would make them a crazy person. So, right. Um, Except there, there have been like, there's a great book I read, um, which is I, I sort of obliquely talk about in the piece, 
it's by a, a libertarian historian named Paul Matsko. It's called the Radio Right. It's 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 about the basically the precursor to right wing talk radio, which were um, sort of anti communist um, radio preachers in the 1960s, who Kennedy basically sicked the FEC on. Um, but um, they had a huge huge listenership, just like the average like suburbanite uh, who like you know. Uh, watched uh, NBC News after work had no idea that they existed. Um, they just like those two worlds didn't intersect. But like Kennedy was really worried about them as an electoral for like as affecting politics. Um, so I do think, you know, people responded a lot to that like suggestion in my piece that like maybe we're just seeing a segment of the public that like we're not used to seeing. Um, and, you know, I don't want to push that too far. But at the same time, like, that is a related discussion to the discussion in the media about underrepresentation of, um, you know, non-white people, non, you know, non-men, um, like, like the people who gatekeepers have kept out, uh, are both people who, um, like really deserve to be, uh, you know, in the media and in the knowledge producing industries and also people who have nothing but like loathing for democracy. Um, <laughs> and so like when you, when you, take when you change the gates when you change the way they work um you know lots of things get it lots of different kinds of things get in some of what you want some things you do want some things you don't um so um that's sort of my way of saying there's good and bad <laughs> yeah i mean you know if you I, I mean i took like a you know media 101 class in high school and like gatekeeping is one of, you know, the three, the chapter one of the, about the media gatekeeping would be one of the things right. it would list in like, you know, so it would have said, you know, the editors decide what counts as news and what doesn't and what voices are heard and which ones aren't. And if the media doesn't cover it, then um, it's hard for that to get out. So that, that paradigm, like the internet has shattered that paradigm. I mean, it's still, if you think back to like, how the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story played out. Like, you, like there was still mm-hmm. an attempt by the media to sort of, in, in the, including the new and social media to sort of stamp out a story that they didn't want spread. And it sort of, I mean, it worked to the extent that, yeah. you know, um, unless you are really in the swamps that you don't care about Hunter Biden's laptop anymore. And of course, Joe Biden was elected. Um, so, so it still sort of works to that extent, but um but yeah, any kook can, um, you know, host a podcast these days and, and the gatekeeping is almost totally, um, eliminated. But at the same time, like, there are people, like, extremely noxious figures eventually do get kicked off of larger platforms like Alex Jones, who, yeah. you know, is, was kicked off of YouTube and Facebook, et cetera. Um, and, you know, former President Donald Trump <laughs> kicked off of Twitter forever. You know, fringe figures such as the president. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, the, the Trump aspect, all of this just makes it all like crazier and stupider and like if if the gatekeepers still existed then trump never would have become the nominee um like they would have been able to put a stop to him and the fact that he rose is a sign of gatekeeper weakness and the way he you know sort of worked around the system um you what i mean what do you think of people like brett weinstein weinstein and um, how should, you know, should, like, should YouTube, he, he's saying things about the pandemic that seems blatantly false to me. Of course, I'm not a scientist, um, but it, it doesn't make any sense to me why a uh, anti-parasite drug would be better for a virus than a vaccine. Um, and I, I, if he keeps on going on this, the way he's going currently, it seems like he'll probably be kicked off of like YouTube and Patreon and Twitter, maybe. How should, how should the new media treat a figure like this? Like if it was 30 years ago, Brett Weinstein would not have an outlet aside from like ham radio or zine to get his views out there. Even if he was still a professor at Evergreen university, like (laughs) what do you like, you know, he would just be like a local crank. Um, What a a family, that family, huh? Yeah. Uh, There are, there, there, there are some interesting people. So, um, it's a complicated question. Um, you know, there's like a libertarian argument, which is that, uh, if you, 
if, if the new media, which I guess by which you mean, what, like digital media and like, uh, yeah, I guess I, I mean more like, yeah, I guess it's, you know, I'm thinking more of the platforms, oh. um, that, I mean, you know, the platforms are free to formulate their own policies, right? They can right. say, uh, if you promote, um, cure, like if you promote things as cures for COVID, that that don't cure COVID or don't, you know, the platforms can do whatever the hell they want. They're protected uh, in terms of content. And, and, you know, as a person who believes in like the rationality of science and like following public health, like I think they should, I just don't think that they are able to come up with a blanket definition of bad information that is apolitical uh, and that is sort of, coherent as a way of thinking about um, how people change their minds when exposed to media. Uh, and that's the argument of my piece. The argument of my piece is certainly not um, you should be able to go and make money off of quack cures on Facebook if you want. Um, I, I mean, I do think that the, you know, the kind of people who are attracted to those messages are already attracted to quack cures and are going to try, maybe try quack cures. Um that's my personal belief about the power of messaging. Um, but I, I certainly don't think Facebook or Twitter or YouTube have any obligation to give these people a platform. Um, my, my broader point is about the worldview that says these platforms are what make people want quack cures in the first place, which I just don't think is accurate. Right. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I mean, uh, there'll be some sort of postmortem, no pun intended, on how it became the case that ivermectin Right. Became this obsession of at least some group of Americans. And mm. I don't know, there's people who on Twitter who have been like sort of lurking in some of these private Facebook groups and posting the screenshots and of people talking about ivermectin and how much to what the doses should be. And some of them are, are very, very disturbing. And, you know, post yeah. like how much ivermectin for a 10 year old. Um and you're just like, okay, this person is in another reality. If Facebook didn't exist, probably their life would be better. Um, but, you know, it, 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 so it just seems bad, I mean, overall. Um, and, yeah, I agree that, you know, 50 years ago, you know, there were plenty of people who thought that, you know, uh, you know, chlorine in the water or something was affecting their brains. And, the, and the, that was before long before the Internet. But... Yeah, there is something, I mean, like, I sort of buy your case, basically, I, th- I sort of buy your case from about the, like, top-down mm. aspect of it, but the bottom-up and the crazies finding each other, and, like, I mean, you know, QAnon was sort of a top-down thing, but it was really also a, you know, sort of a group project of coming up with ideas, and ones would rise to the top, and... Um, How much have you heard about QAnon recently? Well, it depends who you follow... On Twitter, I mean the you know the main the main guy who seems to you know the, or the, these two this father and son duo the Watkins uh, boys um, they seem to have sort of gone off it but maybe the son is still involved yeah. and, and he's so there's you know if if what happened on January 6th didn't convince people who were into QAnon or QAnon curious mm-hmm. that like this wasn't true mm-hmm. you know then these are the type of people who you could right full with anything. So right, right. Yes. I mean if you if you think okay maybe QAnon qua QAnon has is not what it was, you know, 6 months ago, you know, I would be more worried about, you know, what's happening at the school board meetings across America. Um and these are questions about democratic participation that like are live. Um and that like the internet makes more complicated. Um but again, I don't think that um, like Facebook ads, shitty content on Facebook are like the driving factor in like the insane American like desire for chaos and destruction. Um, yeah, so you have you have a paragraph um in the piece uh, where you talk about well pre propaganda, which is sort of yeah. like maybe the base conditions or or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah and totally. you have a list of quotes, including, you know, the paranoid style, the indigenous American berserk, which is a Philip Roth reference, which I appreciated. And yeah, so this is, this was a crazy country long before the internet came along. Um, and, uh, it will, you know, if the internet blinked out of existence, like plenty of crazy shit would, would keep on going. But it's sort of like, 
okay, if we're, you, know, you can't say Facebook and Twitter are to blame for everything, but right. like how much are they making the problem worse? And but I also all these negative byproducts, like just, you yeah. know, destroying the media industry that apparently rely on advertising right. that never really worked to begin with, you know? So, so yes. But what I also want to point attention to in this piece was who are the people who most want to blame the internet for Facebook, you know, social platforms and bad content for negative outcomes. Uh, who has that vested interest? Uh, and that's sort of, you know, when I talk in the piece about, um, you know, not just the sort of political hucksters, you know, the sort of Brad Parscale, Cambridge Analytica types, but also, you know, when um, not to blame things on the neoliberals, but it is certainly in the kind of centrist neoliberal um, interest to blame uh, outs- an outside kind of novel um, standardizable force for what happened in 2015 and 2016. Um, it's much easier to blame that than, you know, sort of their own the policy failures and um, sort of their own failures of like political imagination and communication. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I wanted to call attention to that um, in the piece as well. So, yeah, I mean, if, uh, if I wrote the, you know, the report on the rise of Donald Trump, and listing the culprits in order, I would put reality television at the top and that, you know, predates um, social media and was, you know, d- d- largely um, separate from it for, for a long time. Um, let me see if there's, yeah. So that, uh, just a couple things that I, so right after I read the piece, but I think the same day I, you know, as I do, I checked the New York times homepage and uh, there was a big banner ad on top mm-hmm. and it was for uh, the Pe- Peacock, which is NBC's streaming service, but it was the Spanish version. Mm-hmm. And it said, uh, Peacock, Oz streaming gratis, uh, subscribete ahora, and was mm-hmm. listing three Spanish shows. So there's probably no website that actually, maybe besides Google, that knows more about me than the New York Times website. I'm a subscriber. They have my credit card information. They know what articles I read. And yet somehow they were giving me a Spanish, I don't speak Spanish, they were giving me a Spanish language ad mm-hmm. across the top. So that, so in that respect, I was like, okay. Yeah, a lot of like a lot of this is just total bullshit crap, and the like the ads you see don't really know anything about you and don't really seem to have any real effect, and that's you know the vaunted New York Times. Um, and then a day or two later, I saw on Twitter that there was something trending called COVID twenty two, and so of course I, I didn't know what that was, so I clicked on it, and the top tweet was from something called Insider Paper uh, at the Insider Paper. He said, alert, new super variant named COVID-22 could be more dangerous than Delta strain expert warned. I was like, well, what is this? And, and this had 1.1 thousand retweets, 571 likes. You know, when I saw it, 54 minutes after it was tweeted, I clicked on it. I ended up at a strange website called Insider Paper that seemed to just be stealing content from, you know, European newspapers. Yeah. It was written in a sort of way that seemed like it was maybe translated into another language, translated back. Right. And I, you know, I uh, because I had some spare time, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, is this, is this like the Macedonian teens are back at it again? You know, it, it basically looks like a real website. It has um, bylines. I, I tried to figure out if the person who wrote this article supposedly, uh, you know, attributed to writing this article exists. It doesn't seem like right. they exist. Uh, but there was a phone number. And so I put on my, you know, reporter's hat, which I'm not a real reporter. And the phone number was area code 518, which is uh, upstate New York. And so I called and was just like, what's going to happen? And someone answered with an accent I couldn't really understand. I said, is this insider paper? And they said, yes. And I said, where are you located? And they said, in Australia. Um, and I asked them one or two more questions. And, and they were like, is this, are you for real? And I was like, yeah, I host a podcast. I was just interested in this. Um, and so, you know, basically, so the story was like, there was some real event that happened. Some mm. researcher in Germany said, like, there's a possible strain out there that could be even worse. And he was saying, you know, the, like the, you know, First variant was COVID-20, then COVID-21, and then he would call this one COVID-22. Right, right, right. So they, and then COVID-22 went viral because people were just joking about it being like, like COVID-22, I wasn't over COVID-21 or whatever. Right. And this particular tweet, for whatever reason, uh, you know, the algorithm made it the most popular thing. So it was retweeted over a thousand times. Um, yeah. And even though Insider Paper has like 75,000 followers, you know, right. are they real humans? Who even knows? 
I mean, so, that's gar- you're, what you're describing is garbage. You're describing an internet Ouroboros, you know, garbage <laughs> thing, whether that's like a massive threat to democracy on the scale of like, you know, um, income inequality or like, you know, uh, racist voter suppression, you know, like I, I, we don't have to rank order these things, but like that is a truly stupid and annoying and like potentially harmful thing. Um, but I don't know that it's like indicative of like a massive, uh, like overarching, um, like, like imminent threat to like our way of life. Um, okay. I mean, so I, you know, I always wonder, like, is, is there anyone who is like unpersuaded of anything who's on Twitter? Because, right. you know, like the unpersuadable people are like living their lives out there and, you know, attending their children's t-ball games and stuff. But like, you can just imagine, you know, someone is like glancing at Twitter they see COVID-22, they're like, oh, God, COVID-22, what's happening? It's coming, like, it's even worse. And, like, so their day, basically, this is not, this is not a instance of a giant threat to democracy, but, like, their day has yeah. been made worse uh, yeah. by this, like, little piece yeah. of content that the algorithm has promoted. And, you know, someone in Australia possibly is running this thing. Who knows why? I yeah. I usually, like I said, I run, I run an ad blocker. I looked at it in a... um in a private window. So the ad blocker was off. The ads that were running were sort of the same ones I would see in other places of like that high quality gray uh, uh, face mask that is like oh, supposed yeah. to be the best that you see those ads for everywhere. Yeah. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like chum and trying to get me to, you know, it was like a total scam. Like it's trying to get my credit card information or yeah. something. So, I, so I just throw up my hands and like, this is all, I don't even know. So, so I, I sort of agree that, you know, this is not, this is not yeah there's not climate change equivalent or something but, but like, like it's contributing to making all of our lives worse but like but i talk about this in the in the piece it's like the category of disinformation it's like some of it refers to like state propaganda some of it refers to um dangerous information about covid some of it refers to scams right scams are bad like that's why consumer protection should exist um, but I don't think it's explicable through a framework about like the way humans see the world now. Humans have been trying to scam each other for a really long time, um, as far as I know. Um, yes. So anyway, um, I have to run and pick up my kid. Okay, well, um, yeah, this is, I, I think this is a fine place to end it. So thanks okay. for coming on and yes. taking the time. So people should check out the article. The link will be below on Bloggy Heads. Harper's uh, uh, Bad News was the is the uh, headline in the online edition or yeah, uh, cover story Harper's. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I yeah, I think, um, it, uh, like I said, uh, uh, parts I agree with, parts I disagree with, but this was an interesting conversation. Maybe people change their minds who watch or listen to this. I have, I have no idea. Or maybe it was just something to do while you're, you know, washing the dishes or something. And that's part of life. Also, I guess. You have to so, wash okay. the dishes. Yeah. I mean, you got, you got someone has to wash those dishes. Um, okay. So Joe, so thanks again for taking the time. And if people want to, you're still at BuzzFeed, right? You just took like a sabbatical. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm uh, starting again on uh, on Tuesday. So okay, cool. So and you and your Twitter handle is at Bernstein. Bernstein. So you must have claimed that one early. Um, so you're an early adopter. I'm at RACW, um, and you know people can rate and review and like and subscribe and tell their friends and make a zine about it or yell in the street corner or whatever. Okay, so thank you, uh, thank you, Joe, and thanks to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.